Grace be unto you, and peace from God our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us hear the word of God as we find it written in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, reading there in the third chapter, especially verses 5 and 6. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God, who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Good morning, dear friends in Christ Jesus. And it is a good morning, is it not? And I hope that all of us are here at the call of our soul to come and worship. I do hope you feel that you are among friends and that you do not feel alone. And I pray that all of us will be happy that we came to worship at this hour. Again, today, you heard me mention at the lectern that this is the 12th Sunday after Trinity. And in the ancient Christian church centuries ago on this Sunday, the epistle lesson that was read was taken from Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. You recall last Sunday, the epistle lesson was taken from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. I told you last Sunday that the Apostle Paul and his helpers, they came to Corinth in Greece on the second missionary journey, that Paul spent 18 months there and established a Christian congregation. Now what Paul did was this. He went into the synagogues in the city of Corinth and he worked especially on the Jews, telling them that Jesus, the one who had come, was the Messiah. And he told them that in this Christ who died on the cross, there was eternal life and everlasting salvation. He also told them when he was there in Corinth that because there was salvation only in this New Testament, in that new covenant, that new agreement that God made at Calvary, only in Christ, only in the cross, that therefore there was not salvation in Mount Sinai, in the Ten Commandments, in the law that God had given them. And he told them, therefore, that if they wanted life and eternal salvation, they would have to go to Calvary and move away from Mount Sinai, which is what they did. And then after Paul left, there came some teachers, false teachers, into Corinth, and they worked amongst those in that Christian congregation, and they told them, Paul has told you something that is not true. The Apostle Paul, in telling you that the way to heaven is Calvary, that it's Christ, that it's the cross, they told him, that is not true, that it's not that New Testament, that new agreement made at Calvary. The false teachers told those Christians in Corinth, you've got to go back to Mount Sinai. You've got to go back to the law. The way to heaven is by obedience to the Ten Commandments, by keeping God's law, by fulfilling God's commandments. That's the way. And then they reminded those Jewish Christians, don't you know the glory that was there at Mount Sinai when God gave the Ten Commandments? and reminded them of the fact that when Moses went up into the mountain, you and I recall the story, and he was with God for 40 days and 40 nights there at Mount Sinai, and Moses came down with the two tablets of stone on which God had written the Ten Commandments. Remember the story that his face shone with such glory because he had been with God that the children of Israel couldn't look at his face. They asked him to put a veil on because his face blinded them. And so these false teachers told them there in Corinth, Think of the glory that was at Mount Sinai. Then where was there any glory at Calvary? Where is there any glory? See anything shining at Calvary? Told them 
all was darkness. And so they said, Paul was not one of God's ministers. You've got to get rid of him. And this second letter that Paul wrote to that congregation is a defense of his ministry, writing to those Christians and telling them that God has said this, that God hath made us, he told them, able ministers, that is, faithful ministers of the New Testament, the new agreement, that new agreement, that new testament that God made at Calvary in the name of Jesus Christ, that God made at the cross, that the way to heaven was Christ and God's faithful ministers, Paul reminded them, God's able and faithful and genuine ministers are those who teach that the way to heaven is by Calvary and not by Mount Sinai, in spite of that glory. And you know, today in the confusion in which we find the church, in its foment and in its ferment, and again the fact that we're saying, what are we to believe in this day of so many changes both without and within the church? You and I need to know, as Paul would speak to us on the word of God this morning, just who again is the faithful minister of God? Who are God's able ministers? And Paul would respond and would ask you and me to bear this in mind and to keep it in mind that God's ministers are those who are servants of the new covenant. They are servants of Mount Calvary. They are servants of Christ. They are servants again of the cross who teach that the way of salvation is Calvary, not Mount Sinai, in spite of its glory, not the fulfillment of the law, but faith in Jesus Christ, not obedience to the Ten Commandments. Paul says, God hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, the New Covenant, which is Christ, which is Calvary, which is the cross. You and I may say rather confused, but you know there's something about Mount Sinai. There's something about keeping the law that is glorious. There's something very attractive about it, and there is, isn't there? We may say to ourselves, if I could go to heaven by means of Mount Sinai, and by means of keeping the Ten Commandments, uh, that somehow rather makes me feel good because that gives me a sense of achievement that I did it myself. And how many of us are not saying, I'd rather do it myself? I don't want to save, I'd like to be my own savior. I would like that sense of achievement, that sense of accomplishment. I would like to do it myself. And we say, there's a certain amount of glory and there's something attractive. There is something really appealing about Mount Sinai. Why can't we go to heaven by means of being good? and being honest and being upright and treating our neighbor all right and not doing anybody any harm. Why can't we go to heaven that way? There is something glamorous, we may say, and something appealing about Mount Sinai. Moses' face shone in glory at Mount Sinai when he came with the two tablets of stone. When we say to ourselves, who are God's faithful ministers and preachers? And Paul says, God hath made us able or faithful preachers of the new covenant, that is of Calvary, as the way to heaven, not of Mount Sinai. Let us bear in mind, even though Mount Sinai is very attractive and there's something that it appeals in you and me, nevertheless, Paul says this, bear this in mind, that God's faithful ministers are those who are ministers of Calvary, of Christ, and of the cross as the way of salvation, not Mount Sinai, and all because Paul reminds you and me, remember he says, the letter killeth. What does he mean? He says, the written law, Mount Sinai kills. 
and he says, the Spirit maketh alive. The Holy Spirit at Calvary makes men alive. But Paul reminds the Christians at Corinth, bear this in mind, Mount Sinai kills. Mount Sinai gives eternal damnation. Mount Sinai gives hell and eternal separation from God. You know, it's well this morning, and the confusion that exists within the church to say to ourselves, is that true of that the able, the faithful ministers of God are those who teach as the way to heaven Christ, Calvary, the cross, not Mount Sinai, not obedience, not keeping the law, glamorous and glorious, though Mount Sinai may appear, and all because Mount Sinai, the letter, the written law, kills. Does Mount Sinai kill? Does it give only damnation? Does it give only eternal separation from God? And on the basis of the word of God in the first place, Paul reminds you and me that Mount Sinai, even though it's glorious, the Ten Commandments, when God gave them to Moses, written on two tablets of stone, glorious and glamorous though it was, and his face shone, Paul reminds you and me that Mount Sinai, with all of its glory, what does it do? It convicts you and me of being lawbreakers. But Calvary grants you and me a Christ who kept the Ten Commandments for us. Let's stand at Mount Sinai for a moment this morning. It's rather glamorous, and let's say it says, I'd like to go to heaven this way. I would like to somehow rather go to heaven by keeping the Ten Commandments. Have you and I ever realized what Mount Sinai says, what the law says? I am the Lord thy God, thou shalt have no other gods before me. This is what it said on those tablets of stone. No other gods before me. And Mount Sinai said, have you ever put somebody else in the place of God? Have you ever done your own will rather than God's will in your life? And you and I say, sometimes I have. Sometimes I've done God's will. And then the law says, but if you've kept the whole law and you've broken it in one point, you have broken it all. You're a lawbreaker. Mount Sinai says to you and me, we'd like to go to heaven that way, uh, about taking God's name in vain. Have you ever taken God's name in vain? And you and I may say, sometimes I have and sometimes I have not. Mount Sinai said, if you've ever taken God's name in vain, you're a lawbreaker. You have broken the entire law. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Have you ever despised God's word? Has there ever been a day in your life when you could have gone to worship God and you didn't do it? And you and I say, yes, there has. And Mount Sinai says, you're a lawbreaker. You have broken God's law, all of it. Honoring your parents. Has there ever been a time in your life when you didn't honor your parents? You and I say, yes, there has been. And then Mount Sinai says, you're a lawbreaker. You have broken God's law. God is the almighty God. God demands perfection. You have not kept the law. Mount Sinai says, thou shalt not kill. Have you ever hated anybody? And you and I say, yes, I have hated some. Mount Sinai said, because you have hated, you are a lawbreaker. You've broken it all. You have not kept the law. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Have you ever had any impure thoughts in your mind? And you and I say, yes, we have. And Mount Sinai says, just stand as a lawbreaker. Thou shalt not steal. Have you ever been dishonest? And I say, we have at times. Mount Sinai says, you're a lawbreaker. You've broken God's law. Have you and I ever borne false witness against our neighbor? Have we ever lied about him? Have we ever said unkind things not in love? And you and I say, yes, we have at times. Mount Sinai says, you stand as a lawbreaker. You've broken the law. Have you ever coveted your neighbor's house? Have you ever been jealous of what he has? Have you ever been greedy? You and I say, yes, Mount Sinai says, you've broken that commandment. Have you ever coveted his wife or his maidservant or his manservant? You and I say, yes, we have had evil thoughts in our hearts. Mount Sinai says, you are a a lawbreaker. 
And you and I say, where is their glory there? When we stand at Mount Sinai, when we stand at the letter that is engraven in stones, Mount Sinai says to you and to me and to all men, there is no difference. All of you have broken the law. None of you has kept the law. You are a lawbreaker. And then we go to Calvary and we stand there and there we see a Christ. There we see this New Testament, this new agreement that was made at Calvary, and we see him as God's Son who came into the world, as God's Son, as divine, as our Lord, of more value than all of us, and he says to us at Calvary, but I kept the Ten Commandments for you. And you and I look at him and say, oh, what tremendous good news. Lord, you kept the Ten Commandments for me, and Jesus says yes. I kept all of them. I kept them perfectly. I kept the ceremonial law. And as no less than God, my keeping of the Ten Commandments counts for you. And therefore, when we stand at Sinai, Sinai kills. That's all it can do. It kills you and me because Sinai says, when it shows you and me as lawbreakers, Sinai grants a verdict of guilty. Sinai says to you and to me, you are guilty of having broken the law. But when we stand at Calvary, Christ says, because you have put your faith in me. When we allow the Holy Spirit to bring us to faith in Jesus Christ and we stand at Calvary, then Christ says, but because I kept the law for you, because I fulfilled it in your stead and it counts for you, therefore, I hereby give you a verdict of acquittal. I cancel all of your guilt. I take all of that guilt off of your soul as though you had no guilt at all. That's why we may not see any glamour and glory at Calvary, but it's much more glorious than the glory at Mount Sinai. And there was glory there because there we have a Christ who again takes from your soul and mine all of the guilt of your life and mine having broken God's law. Is it any wonder then that Paul, when he was defending his ministry, said, Who are the faithful ministers of God? Who are God's ministers, genuine? Paul says, They are the ones who teach that the way to heaven is Calvary, not Mount Sinai. That ought to mean this in this confused age, that we ought to believe it. Then we ought to, with a hard-nosed judgment, we ought to look at our minister and we ought to say, Is he a minister of God? What way of salvation does he teach what way does he preach? And it ought to be a hard-nosed judgment. This is the world of change. You may say, well, now we put a man on the moon as a change in theology. Yes, it is. There are some ministers who are saying this, well, because we can put a man on the moon, we can do anything. And therefore, bringing it home in Christianity, there are those who are saying, well, if we can put a man on the moon, we can save ourselves too. We don't need Jesus Christ. We don't need Calvary. We don't need the cross. Let every man save himself. And all oh, that appeals to your ego and mine, doesn't it? It appeals to our pride. And we say to ourselves, well, if we can put a man on the moon, what in the world do we need with a Savior? I'd rather do it myself. And therefore, again, there are those who stand in pulpits who like to change Mount Sinai. Paul says the letter kills. But you know, you just have to change that just a little bit. And you just have to say, now, if you do right and you live by the life that you have and you treat your neighbor right and you treat your mother-in-law right and, again, you don't do any harm, that you're going to be saved. And if you want to be a popular preacher, that's all you need to do. 
to find some good in somebody. Like the woman, you know, she couldn't find much good in her husband, but she always wanted to say something good about him. So at times she'd say, there are times when he's not as mean as at other times. So that was some good. Or the preacher again, preaching the village drunk, the man that whipped his wife, the man again that was everything but a husband, and talking about Jim, and trying to find something good, and Jim was so good, and Jim was this. And the story goes that his widow at the funeral got up and looked in the casket, and then she sat down. Her sister was sitting alongside of her, and the sister said, what did you do that for? She said, well, I just wanted to look and make sure that was Jim. You see, you can be pretty popular when you change Mount Sinai. But let's look at our pastors and whoever you're listening to and ask the question, is he God's minister? God's minister is one who is a minister of the new covenant, who teaches there is this way of salvation. It is only Calvary, not Mount Sinai. And then there comes this comfort that will never be disillusioned. Can you imagine anything that would be more horrible and terrible in your life and mine than for us to put our faith and our confidence in the way of salvation in Christ and then to find out that we were disillusioned at that moment, to know that we were wrong? or to be told from the pulpit uh, that the real glamorous way is this. Go on and keep the Ten Commandments. Just live by the light that you have. Oh, that's what we like to hear because that gives us a sense of accomplishment. And then putting our faith and our trust in Mount Sinai, realizing that the Word of God has said, Sinai kills. Then to awaken and to stand before our God and to know that we are lost and that again we are damned. We say to ourselves in our confused age, just as again the Corinthians were questioning whether Paul was really a minister of God, whether he was one of God's capable ministers, efficient, whether he was a genuine, true minister of God. And Paul says, God hath made us able ministers of the new covenant, that the way of salvation that God has revealed is Calvary. And God's ministers are those who teach the way to heaven, the way to eternal life is that new covenant that God made at Calvary. Christ, the cross, whatever word you'd like. Christ, the cross, Calvary, not Mount Sinai. Because Paul says Mount Sinai kills, the letter kills. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit gives life at Calvary. But Mount Calvary, again, is the only one that gives life. Sinai, the Ten Commandments, can you and I say, does Sinai kill? Paul reminds you and me in the seventh, yet can only give you and me eternal death because with all of its glory, it convicts you and me and sentences us to eternal punishment for our sins. Let's stand at Mount Sinai again. Let's say, Sinai, I'd like to go to heaven your way. Does Sinai really kill? Did you ever listen to what God wrote on those tables of stone? God says, for I, the Lord, thy God, am a jealous God. I am a jealous God in a good sense. Jealousy can be a good thing. God says, I won't share you with anybody. I am a jealous God, and you're going to serve me, and you're not going to serve sin. You are my creation. And so God says, I, the Lord, thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. Did you ever realize what those words mean? <coughs> when we stand at Mount Sinai, here's what God says. Do you hate me? Are you living in keeping with my will? And you and I have to say no. Well, then God says, did your father hate me? Did he live as he pleased, not in keeping with my will? And you and I, we maybe will have to say yes. Suppose we do. Did your grandfather hate me? 
Did your great-grandfather hate me? And then God, if you want to see his justice, God says, it's like a snowball coming down a mountain. God says, I will take the punishment that comes on your grandfather and on your great-grandfather and on your father, and I will heap it up, and it will also be on you. Did you ever realize that? People say to me, are there different degrees in hell of punishment? Yes. If I, as a son, hate God and I turn away from him, and I do not turn to Jesus Christ, and my father didn't turn to Jesus Christ, and my grandfather didn't turn to Jesus Christ, and my great-grandfather didn't turn to Jesus Christ, then there comes on me, because I know better, there comes on me and accumulation a whirlwind of damnation that defies your imagination and mine. That's God. That's Mount Sinai. Yet there's something glamorous, isn't there? What's glamorous about Mount Sinai? That's the damnation of a just God. Oh, go ahead and ridicule God all you want to. Go ahead and make him a God of blood and revenge, but that's justice. God says when you continue in the hatred of your father and grandfather and great-grandfather, it will again. You sow a wind and you'll reap a whirlwind. But you see, we don't like that. But that's what God says. That's what the two tables of stone said. But when we stand at Calvary... Then Christ says what? But I on the cross, I bore that whirlwind of punishment for you. Whatever the accumulation of punishment will come to you because of your sin, because of your defiance of God, I bore your eternal punishment. I bore the equal of an eternity in hell for you. And therefore, when you and I stand at Calvary, the Holy Spirit bringing us to faith in Jesus Christ grants us the eternal freedom from punishment and from hell. Mount Zion alone, Mount Calvary can do that. But Sinai says, you are lost forever. You are damned forever. Who are God's ministers? God's ministers are those, says the word of God, who are ministers of the New Covenant, the New Testament, who teach as the way of salvation only Calvary, only Christ, only the cross, not Mount Sinai, not again the law, not by obedience to the Ten Commandments, glamorous though that may be. And that ought to mean this, that if we bear that in mind, then when ministers of the New Covenant Ministers of Calvary preach the law, we ought to let it do what it's supposed to do. We may say, well, don't you ever preach the law? Isn't the preacher supposed to preach the law? You know, it's so glamorous that you love it, don't you? Just again, you like to go home and say, boy, he sure laid it on today. Isn't that strange? Uh, but when a man preaches the gospel, isn't it rather strange that it isn't quite so glamorous? How many times have you and I been in church and went, boy, I wish my mother-in-law could have been there this morning to have heard that. I wish my husband or my wife could have. I wish that neighbor of mine could have heard. Isn't that peculiar how there's something glamorous? Why? Because when the law is preached by the ministers of God, what's the thing? It's to convince you and me that we are lawbreakers. That's for you, that's for me, not for the other guy. Its aim is this, not to save, but its aim is to condemn, to damn, to show you and me that we need help so that we'll run from Mount Sinai over to Calvary. That's the idea. But it's rather strange how we like to throw it off 
And we say it's for the other guy. Maybe you're looking around this morning and say, I hope so-and-so's listening. Boy, I'm glad they're here this morning. Listen, the law, God gave it, that the law which killed was for you and for me. But when I stand at Sinai, I see that it's hopeless. I see that, again, I'm under sin. I see that there is an accumulation of guilt. I see that I'm damned. Just like when Nathan came to David, when David had sinned, he thought the king can do no wrong. And when Nathan told him the little story about the man with a lot of sheep and the one man with only one, and when the man with a lot of sheep, the rich man, got company, went over and told, stole the one little sheep from the one man, and he loved that one little sheep, and David without thinking, that man must die. Nathan says, you're that guy. You're the man. You and I, when we hear the law, when we have Sinai and the Ten Commandments preached, we ought to say, the reason why God gave the law was not to save, never intended to save. God gave the law to show you and me that we're sinners, to show us that we're all lawbreakers, to show us how hopeless it is, to show us again that we stand damned, that we will run to the cross. And that is, we go to the cross every day and say, thank God for the Savior. That you and I can repent every day and put our faith and trust in him. And every day I can go to him and say, I want forgiveness for the thoughts that have come into my mind that I didn't want there, for the unkind things that I've said, for the unkind deeds that I've done, for the things that I've left undone that had even died. I can have peace with God. But I can have peace with God and know that everything is all right only because, again, because of Calvary. We say when Paul quest was questioned about his ministry, and Paul says, God has made us able ministers of the new covenant, that the way of salvation, he told the Corinthians, that I preached to you was Christ, it was the cross. He said it was again. It was his sacrifice, it was faith in him. And not again Mount Sinai, not the law, because the law kills. The letter killeth. You know, sometimes we forget that. You say, does the letter kill? Yes, it does, because Paul reminds us that Mount Sinai, with all of its glory, it's got a lot of glory. Oh, Moses' face really shone that day. They couldn't look on it. He had to put a veil on. It's got glory. But again, Paul reminds us that Mount Sinai never had a righteousness that could cause you and me to be admitted into heaven, but that only Calvary has the 100% righteousness of Christ that admits us it's all we need for heaven. We stand at Mount Sinai and we say, oh, I'd like to go to heaven this way. I'd like to let it be an achievement in my life. I'd like to let it be an accomplishment that I can do it. I'd rather do it myself. But Mount Sinai says it has no righteousness for us. Mount Sinai says you have no righteousness because you don't measure up 100%. Your score is zero. You have no righteousness in Mount Sinai and we have no righteousness to give you. And we stand there Mount Sinai says you've got to go to Calvary. There you find a 100% righteousness that Christ earned for you. All sufficient righteousness. That righteousness that, again, when you and I have it through faith in him, that we can stand before God on the day of our death and God says, I have nothing against you. The righteousness that covers up our sins and cleanses you and me from all sin and from eternal punishment. We may say, well... Where is there any glory in Sinai? Sinai says after you've been to Calvary and you have been saved, when you come back, then you can look here. And Sinai says, then it will tell you and me how we can show our thanks to God for having been saved. Some of you may say, well, doesn't it make any difference how I live? Don't I have to keep the law? Try to. Oh, yes, but on the way back from Calvary, when we've been saved, 
And then I say, oh God, I want to thank you for salvation in Jesus Christ. Then Sinai says, do your best. Try to live as well as you can. Try to obey God, even though you shall never attain. But let it be your thanksgiving. But Sinai reminds you and me, there's never been a road to heaven at Mount Sinai. And therefore, today we ought to say in the confusion in the church, who are God's ministers? God's ministers are those who are ministers of a new covenant, of a new testament, of a new agreement that was made at Calvary, who teach that there is one way to heaven, and that one way to heaven is Christ and the cross, not Mount Sinai, not a human achievement, not a keeping of the law, but a man must go to Calvary. And then when you and I believe that, uh, then we're going to pray for our ministers and we're going to help hold up their hands and we're going to help tell uh, that at Calvary there is hope for all men. How often have you been of any help in telling somebody about Jesus Christ, about the one way to heaven, that man isn't saved by being good, by being honest, by being upright, uh, that Mount Sinai kills. It kills a man. It's painful. But a man must turn to Jesus Christ. Oh, how we ought to share him so that when the eleventh hour comes in a man's life, that he knows where to go. I think of the Sunday school teacher who had a little boy in her class for the first time one Sunday morning. And she taught a lesson about Jesus. And early that week, that Sunday school teacher passed that boy's home. And that boy and his mother were standing in the living room looking out, and the mother told the teacher later that as the Sunday school teacher went by, the mother said, her little boy said, Oh, mother, there goes Jesus loves me. Somewhere other a Sunday school teacher on Sunday morning had taught a lesson, Jesus loves me. And that little boy met with an accident yet that week and was killed. But a little boy who was in Sunday school one Sunday, who had a Sunday school teacher who told him Jesus loves you. You know any grander way to express faith than for a little child to say, Jesus loves me, and you Sunday school teachers wonder about the thrill of your job. And I think on the cross when Christ was crucified, and here was a malefactor on the left and on the right, and Christ had said again, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And those malefactors had been ranting and railing, and finally the one on the right when he looked at this man on the center cross, wondering how he could pray for his enemies, and then he told the malefactor on the left to keep quiet that we again, he said, we're getting what we deserve. Oh, there was a sorrow. And then remember in the 11th hour, there was help, and he looked to this man on the center cross, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. You know, any nicer way to put faith in Christ? And when Jesus looked down at him and said, malefactor, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Have you any idea that when we share Christ with our friends, when the eleventh hour comes and a man realizes that death is imminent, does he remember something that you or I have said? I stood in the hospital many a time when people seemingly were unconscious, and I've gotten down at their ear, and I have said, Jesus, Jesus. Why? Because I believe with all my being that heaven is just one word away. Jesus, that even a man who may again be semi-conscious may in the eleventh hour may say, O oh, Jesus. And if you can say, O oh, Jesus, that's the tremendous way of salvation. That's all that's needed. You see, heaven is just an O oh, Jesus away. 
that you and I can see in the confusion of the church. Thank God for able ministers of the new covenant. That we can walk the glory road and we can share this Christ that a man in the eleventh hour can still have hope and we can sing oh, about the glorious Calvary. Maybe you haven't seen the beauty there. But oh, on a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. Amen. The peace of God which passeth all human understanding keep and unite your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus unto life everlasting. Amen.